Each year, the Voice of the Martyrs organization holds an international day of prayer for the persecuted church. This year's day of prayer is on November 1st, just a couple months away. They, the story they highlight, the Voice of the Martyrs highlights this year is the story of Jeanette from the Central African Republic. Jeanette's village, like many in her area, is home to many Christians and has suffered at the hands of extremists. These extremists have driven them from their homes. They have burned down their church buildings. And now people like Jeanette and her family and her fellow villagers live in temporary makeshift shelters. And these are more like tents made out of sticks and blankets. People like Jeanette and those like her uh, desperately need aid, and this aid is almost impossible to get to them. Now, there are other missions organizations like the Voice of the Martyrs who not only do the important work of bringing aid to our fellow Christians who are in need around the world, but they also just raise awareness of their situations. You see, Christians in other countries who live in persecution, oppression, and poverty they make an impression on us. They make an impression on us. They, they remind us of how much we have. They remind us of how much we take for granted. They remind us of how much we hoard for ourselves. They show us that we like our comfortable lives a little too much, that we seek after the world's depiction of the good life a little too strongly. But the lives of these Christians around the world who endure persecution, oppression, and poverty, they should show us something more than this. They should make us more than just feel guilty. They should offer us a vision of something better. They should show us also the true power and preciousness of Christ. To hold on to him when you literally have nothing else and everything is crumbling around you. These brothers and sisters should show us that there is a better, more satisfying, more meaningful life than being filled with the world's goods and having the world's approval. As we've went through the opening chapters of 1 Corinthians, we can picture the Corinthians as something like a balloon. The Corinthians, as a balloon, were filled with the air of themselves and with what was attractive about the world around them. This entire letter, including today's portion, what the Apostle Paul has been trying to do is to deflate them of this air and then fill them with something else, with something better, with Christ. So we see that again today as we move into 1 Corinthians 4, verses 6 to 13. It's in your bulletin if you have one, or you can turn there with me in your Bible. 1 Corinthians 4, beginning at verse 6. I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings, and would that you did reign, so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, 
like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels, and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. And we labor, working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. This is God's word. Main point for today's passage. Following the crucified Messiah quells pride and shifts priorities. Following the crucified Messiah quells pride and shifts priorities. We'll break down this passage in two major movements. First, from arrogance to grace. This is covering verses 6 and 7. And second, from the way of the world to the way of the cross. This is covering verses 8 to 13. First, we see Paul wants to take the Corinthians from arrogance to grace. Those of you who are regulars on Wednesday nights are familiar with the eight-second rule. Even if you're not, you may have heard of it. In a classroom setting, when a teacher asks a question and no one answers and there's silence in the room, normally someone will say something after eight seconds. Prove my point right there. You see, you get a little uncomfortable around six or seven. So when I ask a question on Wednesday nights especially, and there's an eight-second silence, it usually tells me that the way I asked the question wasn't quite clear or the explanation that I offered wasn't quite clear either. And at those points, I just, I break the silence and I either ask another question or I just spell out what I was trying to get people to see themselves. In verse 6, Paul tells the Corinthians that there has been a method to his madness so far in this letter. In case they've missed what he's been trying to say, he spells it out clearly right here. From all the times he's talked about the roles of teachers in the church, especially when he's used specific examples uh, referring to himself and to Apollos, he wanted them to learn something. He's had a goal in mind this whole time. He said this whole time, he's written all of this for their benefit. As any, time, any pastor, teacher, anytime they preach or teach, they're preaching for the benefit of the people. And so what is this benefit that Paul has in mind for them? We keep reading in verse 6. He wants them to learn not to go beyond what is written, and that none of them be puffed up against one another. So when the New Testament uses a phrase like, as it is written, it refers to what's written down in Scripture. Normally, it refers to what's written down in the Old Testament. So here, we see Paul's right not to go beyond what is written. So what part of the written Word of God does Paul refer to here? Well, he doesn't say specifically. Notice you keep reading in verse 6, there's no quotation marks right after it. There's no quote from the Old Testament right after the phrase, not to go beyond what is written in verse 6. 
So we should say that this is a good just baseline principle for all of life and ministry, not to go beyond what is written, right? Like the Pharisees who added to the law to make sure that nobody would break it, but they ended up putting burdens on people that nobody could bear. Or like the Judaizers in the city of Galatia who added requirements to the gospel of what it takes to become a Christian. We always need this warning, this baseline principle, don't go beyond what is written. But what does Paul have in mind here specifically? Well, keep this in context. The times he's quoted the Old Testament so far in this letter has served to bolster his instruction not to boast in themselves and to squash all these divisions among them. That's been the goal every time he's quoted the Old Testament so far. Perhaps the strongest quote was back in chapter 1, verse 31, a quote from Jeremiah, when Paul says, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So remember the balloon image we used at the beginning of our time. He sees that the Corinthians are filled with pride. In fact, he uses this word puffed up. That word is later translated in verse 18 of this chapter as arrogant. It's not far from our expression that the Corinthians were filled with hot air. Their lack of self-awareness about who they really were on their own led to these divisions where one group in the church asserted itself over other groups in the church. So friends, here's another good baseline principle for all of life and all of ministry. The sin in our lives always goes deeper than we think. Always goes deeper than we think. There are roots beneath the surface from which our sin grows and eventually manifests itself. So here, for the case of the Corinthians, the bad fruit on the tree of the Corinthian church was divisions. But the root that led to that fruit was pride. From pride sprung up these divisions. And you can make a good case that the root of every sin ultimately is pride. Uh, So a couple of weeks ago, I asked you, what needs to happen to you or what do you need to do in order for you to finally arrive, for you to finally rest, to say, all right, I've done it. I've completed it. Now I can live. What needs to happen? For me, I said it was being recognized and validated in my work in bigger ways. Now, it's okay to have goals. We don't want to dismiss that entirely. But if we invest too much in those goals, we show that we desire to boast in what we've done. That's where we desire to find our identity. Even if we haven't done certain things yet, we desire to find ourselves in ourselves. We desire to boast in what we've done, not in what Christ has already done for us. So the Corinthians, they wanted to achieve status. They wanted the world to recognize them also that they could boast not in Christ, but in themselves. Paul wants to deflate them of this mindset, to deflate their arrogance. So we look at verse 7. He asks just this rapid-fire series of rhetorical questions about who, what, and why. You see that there? Who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast if you did not receive it? 
So the Corinthians want to boast in themselves. But in these questions, Paul asks them, what do you have to boast in about yourselves? Is there any difference between you and other people? I mean, really? Does having a certain teacher even make you better than other people? And these questions should have landed particularly hard on the Corinthians because they identified as Christians. It's one thing for the world to think uh, in their way, but Christians, Christian, Paul's saying, you want to boast in your wisdom, in your status that you get from the world? Are you really going to do that, standing next to the cross of Jesus Christ, which more than anything else shows the depths of our guilt and the depths of our inability? So friends, pride and arrogance are so unreasonable for the Christian, yet they are so subtle, and it is so easy to fill ourselves with these. We do well to deflate ourselves of pride every day. Now look, Paul doesn't want to leave the Corinthians simply deflated. He deflates them in order so that he can fill them with something else. But to be filled with something else, it's necessary first to deflate. So we'll mix the metaphor some. I like to pray through the uh, collection of prayers called the Valley of Vision. This prayer comes from the Valley of Vision's prayer on pride. It says, humble my heart before you, Lord. That is deflate (laughs) and replenish it, fill it with your choicest gifts. As water rests not on barren hill summits, but flows down to fertilize the lowest valleys, so make me the lowest of the lowly, that my spiritual riches may exceedingly abound. The only way to be filled with Christ is to empty yourself of arrogance. The only way for the stream of Christ to flow down to you is to get off the mountaintop view of yourself and to stay in the valley. Do this every day. Keep your need in front of you every day. Look for it as you read the word. I was reading Psalm 70 this week. Psalm 70 verse 5 just pressed on me. It says, But I am poor and needy, Hasten to me, O God. You are my help and my deliverer. O Lord, do not delay. You know, God pressed this verse on my heart to remind me that I'm not poor and needy just when I feel like I am. That I'm not poor and needy just when life is really hard and I don't feel like doing anything. I am poor and needy all the time, every day. So when I don't pray, When I don't seek the Lord, when I let other stuff crowd him out, I tell God that I'm just fine without him. I tell God even that I want to make it without him on my own. Friends, deflate yourself of this. You see, if only the Corinthians could recognize that they were different from others, that they have received much But you see, it wasn't from them. It was from God's grace in Christ. So when we recognize how poor and needy and sinful we are, then we recognize how amazing God's grace is. You see, there is verse after verse after verse in the Bible 
that tells us that our salvation, every part of it and the whole of it, we've received. It does not come from us. It comes from God. You know this one, Ephesians 2, 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God. Philippians 3, verse 9. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Titus 3, verse 5. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. Deflate yourself of self. Fill yourself with God's grace in Christ. As Jonathan Edwards so famously said, the only thing that we contributed to our salvation is the sin that made it necessary. So deflate yourself of self and be filled with Christ. What happens when we do this? For the Corinthians, we remember the fruit of divisions sprung up from the root of pride and arrogance. But what happens when we change the root system? And instead of pride and arrogance, we put Christ there. Out of this, from the root of Christ, if we root ourselves in Christ, will spring forth the fruit of gratitude, contentment, peace, joy, rest, unity, worship, and so forth and so forth. So imagine here an entire church living together, not rooted in themselves, but rooted in God's grace in Christ. An entire church deflated of self and filled with Christ. So following the crucified and risen Messiah takes us from arrogance to humility. Paul deflates them of pride and fills them with grace. But the second major shift we see following the crucified Messiah takes them from living according to the world's values to living according to the way of the cross, from the way of the world to the way of the cross. Have you ever hit a golf ball? Not just putt-putt. No, I'm talking about a full swing. It's amazing how something that looks so simple, I mean, you, you take a club, you hit a little ball, how something that looks so simple ends up being so challenging. And then when you actually step onto a golf course, not just at the driving range, when you go onto the golf course, you have to put all the facets of the game together. You have to drive. You have to hit it well in the fairway. You have to chip. You have to putt. And every time I golf, I fool myself into thinking that I'm somewhat decent at it. You know, I put on the nice golf polo. I put on some shoes dust off my relatively new clubs, I feel pretty good. Then that first hole comes on, on the green, and I slice the ball about 50 yards into the woods, and there again, it's very easy to get frustrated if you're competitive. Somebody gave me the sage advice once. He's told me that unless really you practice every day, you can't expect to play well on the golf course, I mean, realistically. So listen to verse 8 again. 
It says, already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings. In case you didn't pick up on it, this is sarcasm. And yeah, the Bible has sarcasm. We'll return to the golf analogy to kind of summarize what Paul is saying. Wow, you guys are professional golfers. It's amazing how fast you got there, especially because you play golf, I don't know, two times a year. And to think you got to your level of golf skill without listening to us, without doing whatever we tell you to do, without listening to any of our teaching, you got to where you are without us. I mean, wow, after all, what do we know? I mean, we only knew Jesus in person after all, right? This is Paul's response to the Corinthians' evaluation of themselves and their lifestyle. As he's already said in the letter back in chapter 1, verse 26, the Corinthians had no more reason to think that they were successful in the world than a person who golfs twice a year has reason to think that she's a professional. More than that, though, it's more that's deeper than that is the, kind of this criticism and this jab. The goal of being successful and wise in the world is like the goal of being good at golf. I mean, it might come with some perks, but they are temporary. And in the end, you have to ask yourself, does it really matter? In verses 9 to 13, Paul pans the camera back and forth between them and the apostles. You see, unlike the Corinthians, who are so-called kings, the apostles are last of all. Verse 9 depicts a Roman military parade, a victory parade. Now, in the standard Roman military victory parade, the Roman general would show off his army. And then at the very end, he would show off what he won. Namely, he would show off the captives. So in the eyes of the world, the Corinthians wanted to be at the front of this parade, the strongest of the army. And in the eyes of the world, Paul recognized that the apostles were at the back of the parade, the defeated, the losers. So in verse 10, it says, while yes, the Corinthians are in Christ, amazingly enough, they strove to be among the wise, strong, and honorable of the world. But the apostles, notice, were the foolish, weak, and dishonorable of the world. After all, they had sided with God's so-called foolish way of a crucified Messiah. And Paul continues in verses 11 to 13. He says, look at how foolish us apostles are. Look at what we go through. Consider what the world thinks of us. We're hungry. We're thirsty. Our clothes are ripped and torn. We don't have anywhere to live. We work with our hands. Teachers, successful teachers, didn't do that. We are the world's garbage, Paul basically sums it up. And no wonder the apostles embarrassed the Corinthians, right? Because if the Corinthians' standard of success was having the world's approval, and then they looked at the apostles who so did not have the world's approval, then why would they listen to the apostles? 
But by comparing their lives with the apostles' lives, Paul has a scheme. He wants, them to, ta- he wants to take them from going the way of the world to going the way of the cross. And he does this, I think we could see he does this in three steps. He opens their eyes, he changes their expectations, and he shows them the better way. Opens eyes, changes expectations, shows them the better way. This comparison between their lives and the apostles' lives should open their eyes. You see, they wanted praise from the same people who crucified Jesus. That's who they wanted praise from. They cared about the opinions of the ones who thought that the cross was a weak and stupid religion. Did they realize whose side they were taking? They were on the side of those who persecuted Christians, not on the side of their brothers and sisters in Christ. And y'all, just like they needed their eyes opened, we need our eyes opened because we are so much more like the Corinthians than we think that we are, so much more. Look, our picture of the good life comes much more from the world than we realize. Now, I know, us mature Christians can spot any message of the prosperity gospel a mile away. I know, I get that. You know, we know the slogans. We know the typical verses quoted out of context. We know the preachers to look out for. We know that it's not true that following Jesus brings you health and wealth. Yet, we care a lot about our comfort and convenience. We just do. I know there are varying levels of income in this room, but all of us here live in the richest society in history. In history. And like, it's not even a competition. Our surroundings, whether or not we know it, have shaped our expectations for life to some extent or another. The good life we expect is one that is, yes, close to the Lord, but if we're honest, cares more about our good circumstances that we can control and shape and the blessings of this world rather than being close to the blessed God. Good life we expect is, yes, one that cares about the gospel, but also expects to have a relatively trouble-free life. We love Jesus, yes, but our good life, so to speak, is consumed with activity, work, entertainment, that it crowds out deep and meaningful walk with Jesus. Even as churches, the good life we expect, the world shapes it more than we realize. We say we love the fellowship of the body of Christ, but how would we react if many of the comforts that we enjoy went away? What if you didn't have a cushioned pew to sit on? What if you sat on the dirt? What if the lights were off? Could only meet when it was light out. What if this couldn't be a climate-controlled room? What if you didn't have a car to come here? You had to walk. Would Jesus and his people be enough? When Paul compares the lives of the Corinthians to the lives of the apostles, it should open their eyes. 
It should open their eyes to the foolish, worldly way they lived. And then it should change their expectations. Look at verses 11 to 13 again. Does the treatment that the apostles received, does it remind you of anyone? When in doubt, the answer is Jesus. And if that's what you said, you're right. The apostles received the same treatment that Jesus did, walked the same road that he walked, took up the same cross that Jesus first took up. And this is what Jesus said would happen, isn't it? While we follow him in this world, Jesus promised us a cross, not a crown, not a cushion. He said we would be last, not first. John 15, verse 20, Jesus said, Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Paul understood this. Paul understood that the lives that he lived and the lives that the other apostles lived was the life that was first lived by his Savior and his Lord, Jesus and listen, I know we can look at verses 11 and 13 and see the lives that the apostles lived and try to qualify and caveat them in as many ways as possible, sort of to make us feel better, right? You know, we can say that Paul didn't always live like this. You know, in other places, Paul said that churches should strive to support their pastors financially. We can say that Paul's situation was unique. He never settled, he never put down roots in a place more than for a couple years at a time. It would have been really easy for him to be homeless. We can say that Paul lived in a culture with a much lower standard of living and a more overt opposition to the gospel. And we can say that we ourselves live in a culture separated by 2,000 years that has a much higher standard of living, and that standard of living comes at a much lower cost. We could say all those things. I said all those things to myself to make myself feel better about studying in a room full of books with air conditioning. But with all of that said, I'm not sure that we have the same willingness to endure sacrifice as we sojourn as pilgrims in this world that's described here in this passage. The same sacrifice that's described here in this passage, I'm not sure we're willing to endure that same level. Now I get not every Christian has to endure that same level of sacrifice, but you see the life of sacrifice, this way of the cross, we have to understand it's not reserved just for some elite volunteer corps of the apostles. Jesus said that if anyone desires to follow him, they must deny themselves and take up the cross. And in another place, Paul said that all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. All sounds pretty comprehensive to me. Now, neither of these quotes would lead us to say that we, you know, seek out sacrifice and suffering. But they should tell us that if we never feel sacrifice for following Jesus, that should warn us. That should warn us that we aren't following Jesus all that closely. It should warn us that perhaps we may be following him at a distance 
like Peter. You know, when Peter denied Jesus three times, it says he followed Jesus at a distance. Why? Because he wanted to maintain comfort and approval in the world. When Paul compares their lives to his, he opens their eyes to their foolish and futile ways. He changes their expectations for following Jesus in this world. And finally, he shows them the better way. He shows them the better way. Now, if you just take notes, I just realize what you just wrote down. The better way. And hold on a second. How is being hungry, thirsty, poorly dressed, how is working tirelessly, being reviled, persecuted, slandered, and just treated like garbage, how is that appealing? This is the better way? It's not a very good pitch to become a Christian, is it? Which is why so many so-called Christians don't mention any of this stuff. So why put up with all of this? Why be willing to go through it? Not just go through it. Look how Paul goes through it here in this passage. How can you go through all this and maintain joy? How can you go all through this and, and not become bitter, but like Paul, to continue to bless, endure, and seek the Lord? It must be because you have a new definition of better. You have a new definition of what the better way is. The better way is no longer what the best goods, gifts, and accolades from the world can offer you. The better way begins at the cross of Jesus Christ, where Jesus gives us rest, eternal security, forgiveness, peace. It's where he gave us himself, God the Son. Who or what is better than that? Who else, as Peter asked, who else has the words of life? We go this way of the cross because we have already received everything that we sought after that we could not get. We have this treasure in the field, and with joy we have left behind all that we sought after to hold on to this treasure. Our faith in Jesus Christ, who is crucified, buried, risen, and ascended, it gives us assurance that whatever comes our way cannot take us away from him. So we follow Christ our Savior, walking in his ways, embracing the cross that the world deems as foolish. And not only do we know that the opposition and hardship we endure will not take us away from Jesus, we know even more deeply that God will use and bend the opposition and hardship we endure for our good, for the good of those around us, and for his glory. Just consider what God does in us and through us as we walk on this better way of the cross. All that he does. God will use the suffering and opposition we endure as we take up the cross and walk after Jesus. He'll use it to refine us, and to grow us. We know that. This is why the book of James says, to count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. 
not only does it, on this way of the cross, that nothing can take us away from Christ as we walk in this way, but even the hardship and opposition we endure on this way, God will use it. He will use it so, to equip us to help others. Paul's second letter to the Corinthians. 2 Corinthians 1, verse 4. Blessed be the God of comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. God comforted us when we were in trouble so that we can comfort others who are in trouble. God uses it. God will use what comes our way as we walk on the better way of the cross to cause us to rely and know more of his strength rather than our own. Again, from 2 Corinthians, you know this verse. 2 Corinthians 12, verse 9. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. God will use this opposition and hardship that we endure on the better way of the cross to give us a deeper fellowship with Christ. This is what Paul and Peter and the author of Hebrews mean when they say that we participate in Christ's sufferings. It means that when we endure opposition in the name of Jesus, our bonds with Jesus grow stronger. We know him more deeply. God will use the opposition and hardship we get on the way of the cross as described here in 1 Corinthians 4. Hardship like that. He will use it to keep us anticipating, not for this life, but for the life to come. To make us travel light here because we have a different home. Romans 8, verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory to be revealed to us. So friends, do you see the tragedy of the Corinthians wanting to avoid this way of the cross. Look at what they would miss out on. By doing this and going after the way of the world, the Corinthians would miss out on what God does in us and through us as we walk on the way of the cross. You see, by trying to follow Jesus and maintaining an easy, trouble-free life, you miss out on the blessings that come only on the way of the cross. Blessings such as knowing Christ deeply and being used by Christ mightily. So friends, what we say is don't avoid the way of the cross. Don't be scared of opposition and hardship. Why miss out on the blessings that God has for us in these if we are already secure and safe? Why miss out for the world's stuff and approval that will go away anyway? And you see, the tragedy for the Corinthians was that by going after peace with the world around them, they had to forsake following and embracing Christ's cross. And in turn, they lost peace within them. They went after peace with the world around them and lost peace within them. What an awful bargain. They needed to understand what we still need to understand, that when we take up our cross and follow Jesus, we will not have peace with the world. We won't. We might be friendly, but not at peace. 
We may not have peace with the world, but we will have peace with God. And we will, if we are following the way of the cross, have peace with one another. And that is so much better. So friends, deflate yourself of self and fill with the grace of God in Christ. Deflate yourself of the world and be filled with the cross and the way of the cross. Let's pray. Father, we are poor and needy. And we thank you, Lord, for your grace, your patience with us. Boy, do we need it. We get filled with the wrong stuff all the time, every day. Keep us vigilant. Keep us humble. Help us as we read and meditate on your word to deflate ourselves with pride and be filled with you. Lord, help us to forsake following the ways of the world. Show us where it influences us, where we don't see. And help us to follow the way of the cross. God, show us, reassure us again the way of Jesus, being found in him, nothing can take us from you. Make us bold in the face of opposition. We need that prayer. We are not bold in ourselves. So Lord, make us faithful, more faithful disciples of you, knowing that we have already received much. We want to live for you. We want to live uh, being filled with you and live walking the way of the cross. Please do this in us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.